Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Jen, I'm going to start by reading a short story. Because I've got a collection of short stories, but I'll just read one because it's actually quite Short. short. It's called Fine. 25 degrees, 26 degrees, 27 degrees, southerly wind... Southwesterly wind. Fine, overcast, late change. Melbourne, Adelaide, Darwin. It's clear he has a background in radio. His voice is balanced, his diction precise. He needs something to occupy his time now he's retired. And the money comes in handy. Even after the diagnosis, he insists on going into the recording studio for at least an hour a day. Towards the end, they set up the equipment in the dining room of his house. He's just finished recording the last words on the list when the tumour says it's time and he falls from his chair. Twelve years later, it's still his voice that announces the daily telephone weather, towns, temperatures and wind speeds, edited together seamlessly and updated each day. From time to time in the lonely hours of the night, his widow dials the number of teleweather. 55 cents a minute to hear the familiar voice travelling the country, town by town, hot spells to cold snaps, drought to deluge, season by season. Perth, 29 degrees, late thunderstorms. Alice Springs, 33 degrees, overcast. Sydney, 25 degrees, westerly winds at 30 kilometres an hour. When her children ask, are you happy? She smiles and smooths the tablecloth. I'm fine, she replies, keeping busy. But at the end of the month, when she opens the telephone bill, she sees just how much she's been missing him. Oh, David, that's for climate deniers, that one. (laughs) In a way. But but it's beautiful. It's a beautiful short story. It's the name, uh, fine is the name of that short story, but that that story gives its name to the title of this collection uh, called Fine by Michelle Wright. So, Michelle Welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much, David. What makes a short story? Because that is incredibly short. That is incredibly short. And sometimes short stories that short are classified as um, flash fiction or micro fiction. Mm. Um, so things under about a thousand words I'd, I'd call you know, micro fiction. But I mean, they all, they're just all short, uh, you know, and a self-contained story in a few thousand words, I suppose. But it's almost poetic it in is, a way. Yeah. Because mm. you've evoked an image. Is, is a short story a poem in some ways or not? Uh, look, I suppose it is. It's really just um, short stories that short are all about just capturing a, a moment in time, just peeking through a window, perhaps getting a glimpse of someone's life, um, being very, very economical with words, really. I think in that shorter story, you have to choose each word extremely carefully and just uh, have a glimpse and then walk away and, and leave the left rest to your imagination. Well, that's the power of the short story, yeah. but also the power of poetry, because yeah. you don't actually have to necessarily fill in all the background. No. You just give a glimpse mm. and the reader has to imagine for themselves. Exactly, and I think even with that short story, you can imagine a lot about that woman's loneliness and her grief um, and uh, her, how much she misses her husband. But you just mentioned before it's based on a 
true story? It is, saying? yeah. So it's a, an elderly woman I know, uh, an 85-year-old woman whose husband died 15 years ago now. And if you call 1196, you can still hear his voice reading the telephone weather each day. So uh, it's quite surreal because he'll say, you know, today is the 18th of August 2016 and, and he's been dead for 15 years. Oh, my and goodness. She does, and she does dial the telephone weather and spend hours listening to his voice. It's, it's a almost, beautiful story. Well, it's got a sort of supernatural element to it, <laughs> it as does, well. Yeah. But the sound of words, you've got another, mm. talking about words, you've got a story yes. entitled Words, and you you go into phonetics in mm. some ways, but it's an insight into the power of sound. I mean, you've got somebody who's passed away, which is a yes. euphemism, uh, but the character in this story prefers the, um, a, a, I can't even get the word out, al- alveolar. <laughs> the alveolar D, because dad is dead. It's got a finite aspect to it. But that's more about the sound of the word than anything else. Yeah, and I guess the common um, theme between that story and fine is that the sound of... um, our memories of the sound of voices and the association that we make between the the sound of a word and and its meaning, you know, dead, dad is dead, um, has a lot of has a huge impact on this young girl's um, acceptance of her father's death. I think, but and, that has a very poetic sensibility about it. Yeah, this yeah. is the point I'm sort of getting at. Mm, well, I studied phonetics and linguistics um, in my undergrad days back in Paris, and um, it was it was really fascinating to look into that connection between the sounds of words and, and their meaning and the impact that the sounds of words can have on us, you know, the, the soft um, P's and, and B's and the hard T's and well, D's. Well, in this, in the words story, <laughs> yeah. uh, which words being spelt phonetically here, yes, by the way, yeah. um, there is a um, sensuousness <laughs> there by is. some of the words, yeah. uh, a harshness. Mm. So you're using yeah. the sounds yeah. of those words to convey something. So it's more than just the meaning of the word, it's mm. the sound of the word. Mm. That's right. I mean, I think I give the the example of Fs and Vs, which are often used in words like fervour and fervent and fever. And there's something about the way you pronounce those words, the way you have to, you know, the shape your mouth has to form to say those words that really echoes the, the meaning of those the words. the seductiveness mm. of certain sounds. <laughs> the labiodentals. As, <laughs> have you ever been, you know, seduced? by a labiodental jam. <laughs> this is the, the thing. Here, you, you might have been. You just didn't know what to call mm. it. But, I mean, I, I've got a background teaching English and, yeah. and trying to impart this awareness mm. is, is actually uh, quite challenging. But you've done it there in that story. Yeah, and I think, I mean, my awareness was really raised because I, I spent 11 years in, in France, um, so I'm, I'm bilingual, and having to, to decipher and to find your way into another language through its sounds and its its phonemes really helps you to understand the impact of English sounds on, on learners as well. So, yes, yeah. um, but again, some of the English sounds actually don't make sense. Um, I used to give my students the one about how do you spell fish? Mm-hmm. Uh, G-H-O-T-I, <laughs> the G-H in enough, the, o, uh, the I in women, we don't say women, and the T-I in station, mm-hmm. so G-H-O-T-I must spell fish. <laughs> so English is a, is a crazy language. Mm. But I have digressed. Back to short stories, yeah. back to poetic short stories, yes. because another thing you do is you take images. Now, you've spent time in Sri Lanka yeah. and you evoke um, the effect of the tsunami. Mm. Um, you've got the characters uh, driving along. Um, but here we just have this image of, um, well, I'll just read it out. 
He makes a note in his mind of what is still there. A red plastic bowl, a pink doll's head with pale orange hair, a silver-framed wedding photograph, an unopened green and yellow packet of biscuits. Mm. I mean, it's all the detritus of, mm, the, that's right. of the tsunami, and yeah. yet you don't say a tsunami's hit. You no. just give us that image. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's, I mean, I, I did spend time in Sri Lanka. My, my parents are from Sri Lanka, so I have a real attachment to it. And um, I spent six weeks there recently on a residential fellowship along in Gaul and uh, spent a lot of time travelling along that, that coast that was really heavily impacted by the tsunami. And there's still, I mean, you know, 10 years, more than 10 years after um, the tsunami, you still find um, signs of the destruction of the, of the um, wave. And But beyond that, I mean, I think those found objects, um, whether it be after a tsunami or just in in a, a town, the found objects that you find in the streets and the gutters in the parks, they can they're often a trigger for me for a much you know, broader reflection on you know, the the place of objects in our lives. Well, that that's that's the whole point of uh, you know that poetic sensibility yeah. I was talking about before, a trigger that can evoke yeah. emotion. Mm. Uh, you sort of set the background of something and then just put that image in and. All of a sudden, it just expands and yeah. uh, makes you think. That's right, and I think I leave a lot of the work up to the reader. I think when you do, when you are limited in a short story, um, you get your objects and your the dialogue to do a lot of the work um, for you, and the, and the reader really has to complete that conversation um, with me. Mm. So, they a, a little a, an object, for example, can then uh, evoke a whole lot of memories in the reader that perhaps I, I'm not even aware of that I didn't intentionally put in there. But that's the that's the other half of the dialogue, I guess, of, between a, a writer and a reader. Did you learn that or are you some sort of innately aware of it? How did you come up? upon that sort of approach? Yeah, look, I haven't really studied. I've done some short courses in writing, but I think it's just something, it's just uh, intuitive. That's how I respond to texts myself as reader, as a reader. And so I think I just, I never plan my short stories. I'll have a, an image or a, a sentence that I've overheard that is a starting point and I'll just let it flow from there. And obviously there's a lot of editing and, and things that comes afterwards, but um, there's, I never really set out with an intention behind my stories. They just, they just flow out of me. Mm. Because Actually, there are quite a number of short stories in this collection. I haven't actually counted them all. No, I hadn't either, but apparently there are 33 I read in the review. Oh, 30, which <laughs> and some of them quite, are very short, yeah. Which is quite, well, some of them are very yeah, short, yeah. Uh, almost a page, well, barely yeah, a page long. Yeah. Some of them are more extended. Mm. Um, it's, so it's, it's quite a, a volume in that regard yes, yeah. um, for what you've done. Um, Again, back to this notion of um, the sort of poetic sensibility, the use of imagination. There's a, a, um, a, a separation, breakup in moving men. Moving men have come in to remove furniture. But the way uh, this man thinks about it, um, he pictures a time when he'll be all right, a time when she'll be done with and stowed in the past, when he'll tell the story of their lives with detachment, analysing his reactions and nodding, when he'll tell his new wife how unsuited they'd been, how young and unready, when, if he hears in years to come that she has cancer, he'll think, that's sad for the kids, but not much more. He knows that time will come. Mm. And it's sort of projecting into the future. Yeah. Uh, well, I think, I mean, both in my character's lives, but I guess in our lives as well, a lot of our living is done in our heads and uh, projecting to the future or reflecting on the past. And that's what I often try to capture. It's not all about uh, the immediate actions that people are going through. A lot of the living that we do is either projecting or reflecting. Um, it's a big part of our lives, I think, as human beings. You know, we have that capacity to um, you know, imagine, um, mm. whether it be backwards or forwards. And I think that's a really interesting thing to examine in literature. So it's, it's not just the event taking place, no. it's, it's 
projecting beyond yeah. or, in, or into the past. Yeah. Um, and a lovely use of uh, language. You've got one simply entitled Taken, which is even shorter than the one I read before. Mm -hmm. um, but it's about a shark taking a child and the mother's response. And the last line, but when at last she saw its face with its fearful, lifeless eyes, all she truly wanted was to stand and stare and weep. Mm. Um, I mean, if I were to be a, a linguist, a tricolon, the three items, the uh, stand, stare, you've got, um, yeah. you know, the, the sibilants and, and, and things like that. The, and, and yet it has a force and a power. Mm. Um and look, I, I don't, you know, intentionally put it together that way, but I do, the rhythm of, of my sentences mm. is very important to me. So I do read them aloud and I know sometimes that, no, there's just a syllable missing here for it to, 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 you know, to flow, flow, to flow. And there's a cadence. And this yeah. is why I, I keep yeah. coming back to this notion of, of the, the poetry mm. um, that's, that's there. And I guess... You have to have a natural intuition. I, th I think so, and you know, look, I did a lot of reading as a as a young person. So I think I've you know, if you read good, well written sentences, it makes it easier then to to reproduce them, to produce them yourself. Um, but also, it, it enables you to communicate in a, a, a more, um, how would you put it? Um, effective way, yeah. Because you, sorry. So I think it's a bit like music. I mean, I think if you've got, you can have a well-written um, sentence with a powerful message in it. But if once once you do really get that cadence right, it's mm. a little bit like a, a line of music. You know, the the lyrics are one thing, but when when you have that melody really reinforcing yeah. the message, it's, it becomes so much more powerful and memorable. And unfortunately, we use phonetic terminology, yeah, uh, the, or the terminology of linguistics to explain it, which sort of makes it clinical, mm. but it's the only way to actually explain what's been taking mm. place mm. and how it has that impact, which is what we do as English teachers, trying to teach poetry. <laughs> and the students think it's terribly dry, but you've, you've got to find some way of explaining it. You've got all sorts of situations, uh, blurred edges, theatre mm. in prison. Yes. So when I was 18 years old, I spent four months in Pentridge um, <laughs> with the Mess Hall Players, which was the Prisoners Theatre Group at the time. Um, we put on One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest, and there were a lot of very interesting stories um, from the prisoners there. And so I've captured a few of them, or one of them in, in fine, and I've got lots of others lined up in my head ready to be told. Because but there's another situation, <laughs> I mean, working in a prison, yeah. and whether they're trying to sort of manipulate somebody coming in from outside mm. or not? Well, some of them certainly would have been, yes. Yeah. Um, I became very close to a lot of them who you know, I had a, a very close relationship with, a very good relationship with, and, and went on to um, go out to lunch with them when they, got, when they were released and went to their weddings and, yeah, and kept in touch. So you know, it was, that was a fascinating insight because so few people, let alone women, get to see behind the scenes there in, in Pentridge at the, as it was at the time and um, to spend four months every day there for long hours was an incredible experience. So I have lots more stories to tell about that. In the next collection, perhaps. <laughs> well, we'll have to look forward to the next collection because, mm. unfortunately, we're going to have to end the interview there, Michelle. The book is called Fine. As I said, a collection of poetic short stories and the author, Michelle Wright, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. Mm. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you very much for having me. And now we're going to Daryl. Daryl Pitt has written a number of books in the Jack Mason adventure series, but now he has a new character, Blake Carter. Welcome, Jack. Uh, welcome, <laughs> Daryl. <laughs> I'm getting confused with all your. That's that's okay. Look, I'll I'll be Daryl, and okay. you, you can be Jan for today. Uh, thank you. <laughs> well, Daryl, both 
your character and you yes. have a daughter. We do. So are there any other characteristics you share? Look, absolutely. You know, Blake has rather a, a, a both a love and a fear of modern technology. And I think so many of us are like this today. I mean, modern technology is wonderful and it's completely transformed our world, but we're all a little bit adrift in it. I mean, I doubt whether anyone can even tell you how your television set works or, or even a, a phone or anything. And and Blake is in pretty much the same boat. You know, he's a, he's a modern man in the year 2509. Uh, uh, the year 2509. Mm, so he's he's grappling with more than televisions and phones, isn't he? Absolutely, absolutely. But in so many respects, you know, he's very much like us. You know, he sort of longs sometimes for an for an easier time and an earlier time. Well, what about the setting? Where's this? Where is where are we in uh, two thousand five hundred and nine? Absolutely. Well, let's see. It's year twenty five oh nine, as you say, Jan, and the city is Neo City. And if you dug way, 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 way down under Neo City, what you would find is what used to be Washington and what used to be New York. So Neo City is very, very big. It has skyscrapers thousands of stories high and it's pretty nice on those upper levels, mm. but when you go right down low, it's uh, it's a bit grimy, it's a bit dark, and it's not very safe. Quote from the book. Buried under five centuries of construction is a mouldy green statue of a lady with a torch and a book. <laughs> <laughs> so Neo City. And, of course, there's some nicer, nicer neighbourhoods than others. Uh, another quote. This part of town was about as safe as landing a paper glider on the surface of the sun. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is par for the course, really, with uh, descriptions going on in um in this city, in this mm. time, because mm. the earth, it's very different. It is, it is, yes. It's uh, really, it's probably just as confusing as it as it is today. I mean, we're trying to make sense of life, and for, for Blake and the other characters, they're sort of stuck in the same boat, but it just happens to be five centuries in the future. And, of course, they're not all humanoidal, are they? We've had a lot of space travel. There is, there is, yes. So there's plenty of aliens in there. There's cyborgs, there's robots, there's every sort of living creature and alien you can imagine and probably then some. And, of course, you know what we start off with, the, one of the alienest of all, the editor. Oh, yes. <laughs> Zeb Blatznar. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, if you can, it's a bit hard to physically describe Zeb other than to say that he's got a lot of eyes and a lot of tentacles. It's a bit like David Attenborough, but with <laughs> tentacles and more eyes. He starts the story, and he actually, it's his setting I'd like to read, if you don't mind. The year is 2,509. The Earth is a rather polluted blue dot that suffers from global warming, overpopulation, and not enough people using deodorant. Mm, that's right. Well, that deodorant, that's a real problem, isn't it? <laughs> Look, it's, it's Z popping in to give explanations mm. and absolute weirdness. <laughs> <laughs> that, that weirdness is just how my brain works, Jan. <laughs> well, we know Blake's the goody. Mm. So 
who's the baddie? I know. Well, he's the the arch villain of our piece. It's Bartholomew Bad, whose sole aim in life is to become the greatest baddie the the universe has ever seen. And he is so bad, even his name is Bad. B A D D E. Now, why does uh, Blake despise him so much? Well, you know, in his heart, you know, Blake is a good guy. You know, he he despises evil in all its forms. And, of course, as it turns out, Bartholomew Bad was responsible for the death of Blake's original partner. Now, we actually haven't said what Blake does as a mm. job. We better get on to that. I suppose we better. <laughs> Yes, so he's a uh, an agent with the Planetary Bureau of Investigation, which is a little bit like being a cop and an FBI agent all at the same time. And he can get sent out on all sorts of weird and wonderful adventures to bring ba- bring down the bad guy. The bad guy killed mm. his former partner, but so now he has a new one, a new partner, Nikki Nikki Steele. Nikki Steele, and she's not a robot. No, she's not. She's not a robot, and she's not a human. In fact, she's a bit of both. She's a cyborg, and she has to remind everyone all the time because she looks like a robot that she is a cyborg, and she does have a human part to her. I think it might be about, uh, well, it might be about eleven or thirteen. I'm not sure. Mm. So she she constantly has to remind people about this. Yes. But she's also, when she comes into Blake's office, she looks around and she's so high tech, she had to use her data pad to mm. research what the filing cabinets were used for. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. As I said, like Blake is a bit old-fashioned at heart. Yes. So what's the case that they're on? Absolutely. Well, it, it goes from one thing to another because it starts off with, you know, another typically difficult day for Blake. But then as it turns out, the earth is being held to ransom by Bartholomew Bad. And to save the day and to also save his daughter, who has been kidnapped by Bartholomew Bad, Blake has to go out and uh, break into a high-tech facility to fulfil Bad's demands. Otherwise, dun, 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 dun. Oh, absolutely. And he has to call on the super knowledge and strength and ability of his ex-wife. He does. And look, and any of us who have been through marriage breaks up, breakups know how easy that is to do. That's a joke, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and what is uh, Blake's Astrid, his wife, yes. ex-wife, what, what, what does she star in? Oh, well, sure. So she's a, uh, well, she's actually a, uh, a teacher, but, uh, and her expertise is in, is in the classics. Skarmish also. Oh, of course. Yes, yeah, she plays Skarmish. In fact, talking about the Olympics, which we weren't, but we can now, <laughs> she, she's actually won uh, gold medals in the Olympics, in the interplanetary Olympics, of course. So it's Astrid, it's Blake, and it's and Nikki, who are all going through the most incredible different parts of Earth Absolutely. and places beyond, trying yes. to retrieve Blake and Astrid's daughter. Absolutely. And if you're an Elvis fan, oh, Elvis, geez. even Elvis <laughs> makes an appearance. Actually, I think it's fair to say he makes lots of appearances, but I'll let you read the book to find out what that's about. 
The only person who actually knows how to talk to Blake sensibly is his car. Yes. Now, his car, Sally, yes. is a 1956 Chevrolet Bel Air. Yes. And she criticises his driving. Absolutely. Well, Blake has some strange idea about driving his own motor vehicle. And for poor Sally, who, of course, is uh, an uh, AI, can actually drive the car quite well without him, she really looks upon this in horror and thinks, how am I going to get through this day with a human driving the vehicle? <laughs> you think about these uh, these machine, machines taking on a little bit of mutation. Another bit I really liked was... Uh, beware the car wash that had taken three vehicles hostage, threatening to kill them if the quality of its detergent wasn't improved. <laughs> I know. Well, we all like to complain, don't we? Okay. Things that they come across. I think one of the funniest one was a um, oh, this thing that was following them in the tunnel that just got bigger and bigger and it, because it, it, it had just realised it liked eating life forms. Absolutely. And it was a mutated cheese sandwich. It was a mutated cheese sandwich. You know, it goes to show that, you know, you you give something long enough and, you know, chuck it down a deep black hole and add a bit of radiation, you can get anything. Absolutely, especially in a weird mind of Daryl Pitts. <laughs> um, you mentioned the Elvis Presley uh, township, mm. but there's quite a few that have a lot of religious um, feels about them. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, of course, even here on Earth, we have, have a lot of religions and uh, a lot of them seem to like to disagree with each other. And you can just imagine when we get into the future and we make contact with all of those other planets, they'll probably have all their own religions. And uh, there's probably, if you add them all up, it's probably several, several million religions all over the galaxy. You know, after seeing the life of Brian, you, you know you can <laughs> understand following the the Thong religion. But we yes. have the religion of the talking wart. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and another land called perfection. The promised land lies beyond the world of ultimate devastation. And I like this because I think you're actually playing around with another religion here because you've called the leader there. Quasimodo Smith. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is amazing what people will believe, isn't it? <laughs> yes, or be scammed about. Well, and we're not saying what religion that might be. Absolutely not. <laughs> and of course, the other thing that comes into this is the disappearance of the Last Supper mural and wall. I know, I know. And, uh, I mean, you can imagine one day it's there and people are going in and looking at it and then they go in the next day and it's gone. So where could it be? Where could it be? Watch this space or read this book. Uh, read this book. <laughs> and read this book, Action, with our brave duo taking a detour through a pocket dimension. Can you really do that? <laughs> well, look, you need to watch what you eat beforehand. And, you know, you don't want to go into pocket dimensions on a full stomach. So they are racing through galaxies with the help of um, incredible machines, technologies, and a pirate with a parrot. I know, of course, that's Rasmussen Goyle. And he has a, an amazing space, spacecraft called the Rancid Cat. Now, when I say amazing... Yes. Well, it's probably not amazing for the reasons you would want it to be amazing. We, all of this is far-fetched, of mm. course, but you do a bit of connecting with the past. And yes. I'd like you to read the little bit from page 204. Absolutely. Here we go. Blake peered into the grime. What are all these yellow stubs? 
Cigarette butts, Nicky said. Cigarettes? What are they? I believe they were part of a strange 20th century custom, Nicky explained. Millions of people would place a chemical pipe bomb in their mouths and set it alight. Holy sprot, Blake said. That's insane. It's probably a kind of ritual suicide. Standing outside city buildings, they would light up and see who, who would explode first. Sort of a death wish? Exactly. The ancients were very strange, Blake thought. <laughs> the ancients. Now, I, I know it's a book set for, you know, sort of young teenagers mm. and stuff. Or and young at that, heart. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because I wonder how many young youngsters, well, you know, sort of young at heart, would, mm. would young at heart would get all the, the Brady Bunch, the Humphrey Bogart, the Cary Grant yeah. and the sex doll bit. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, but this is what, what really amazed me. I yeah. should say that Nikki is surprisingly beautiful. Yes. But she's still in 2,509. Mm. There's still sexist comments out there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. The more things change, the more they really do stay the same. So, Will, the greatest evil genius the galaxy has ever seen, duel his nemesis to the death? Well, I suppose we'll just have to read the book and find out. But let's hope it has a happy ending, because if our hero dies in the end, there can't be a sequel, can there? (laughs) I've been reading and and enjoying the chat with Daryl Pitt, about his book, A Toaster on Mars, published by Text. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you, Jan. And now Daryl's going to sing a song. What's so good about now? What's so good about now? Spaceships, plastics, teleportation, cloning, face swap, spidergration. What's so good about now? What's so good about now? We've got cryogenics and time machines, terraforming and aging creams. Now, 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 what's so good about now?